Good morning, everybody. It's David Donkey. It's March 1st, 2021. And it's time to really get into motion on the fight to vote. So I'm going to get this podcast up and going again, and I want to do it on a series called The Fight to Vote. Um, thanks for coming on here and listening. I'll be doing it mostly when I'm out doing my walks. That's when I uh, formulate my thoughts and my, my kind of energy for the day. Also, uh, it just wouldn't seem right if I was doing it in some kind of more controlled environment sitting at a computer or in my basement, uh, in like a little mini recording studio. Um, so good morning and, uh, glad you're here. Uh, (laughs) I did a, I've done a bunch of podcasts for us. Uh, as you might know, um, and did a 98 in a hundred days, uh, between October 15th and January 20th, the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And one of the, uh, one of the, uh, reasons why I kept doing it every day is because there was so much going on for our democracy. And also, um, it was a moment that I, I wanted to be fully present and engaged in. I, I, uh, I, this is what my work is about is moments where we fight for our, the soul of our country. And, uh, and it's part of my responsibility, I think, to be fully present. Um, this is part of just the mindset I have as a, as a professor for a couple decades. And now as one of the, the leaders of our organization, Common Power. Uh, that is, it's not enough to just witness our unfolding challenges around voting, voting justice, adjust the fight for a just and inclusive democracy. It's not enough to just witness. It is not enough to just witness. We need to be fully engaged, leaning in and doing what we can. And there's a lot that we can do. Um, this particular episode today is the uh, the kickoff to a new series I want to do on the fight to vote. This is going to be a series I do twice a week um, for as long as needed. Which, well, let me say that again. That that would be forever in our country, unfortunately, for reasons upon reasons that I will dive into here. Um, but it will be, I will do it for, for not weeks, but probably months here as we fight for, um, voting rights in America in 2021. There is much going on at the federal level. It, in states, there are many organizations where common power is one of them fighting for voting justice. And we are, uh, there is, I'm starting it now because the timing is now and I will explore many of those things in this podcast uh, series. 
but today I just want to kind of lay out the reasons why I'm starting the series and going to get it going. And I'm hoping you'll share this with anybody you can think of as an on-ramp to civic work, um, as an on-ramp to uh, financially supporting this work. Uh, there is no more important um, fight in our democracy than this right now. So um, this episode today, again, is kind of for laying out the reasons why I want to do this series. So in Common Power, we, we focus on the power of a vote. That is the most common power that any citizen in our country, the United States of America, has and should have. And everybody who's 18 years old or older has the right to vote in our country. Um, it can be taken away. You can, or another way to say that you can lose it, or it can be taken away, however you want to phrase that. If you do certain things, if you can commit a felony in uh, every state, in, almost every state in this country, 48 of them, if you commit a felony and you are convicted, then you uh, lose the right to vote while you are in incarcerated. Um, in some of those states, you regain the right to vote afterwards upon uh, exiting. Um, in all the states you do, partly because of the work of common power, in all the states you regain the right to vote. In some states, you regain it right away when you come out. I will talk about that dimension of our country, incarceration in this series and voting. Um, but it is the most common power that we have in America is the right to vote. And we, in, in naming our organization Common Power, which is not where we started, we started with the name of Common Purpose. Uh, we, we wanted to put the focus on that common power. Uh, and when we were renamed in the middle of 2020, and it's just, it's the right move. Um, colleagues that I work with, our leadership team, it's just, it's, we feel very strongly that this is the right focus, the common power of voting. And we also want to work in, in commonality, in collaboration with many organizations around the country to build power for them in their communities. And for them, voting, voting is, uh, you know, the mechanism by which they are able to, to pursue policies and, uh, genuine strength. And so it is not a theoretical exercise. Common power, the fight for common power, the fight for common voting power is an essential thing in America. Our focus from the beginning has been on that vote, on the voting, on voting and on the vote, um, and what we call voting justice the fight for a just and inclusive democracy where everybody can register to vote if they're 18 years or older and can cast the vote. Register to vote and cast a vote. Um, they are different enterprises. Right now in the United States, we have the most sustained battle over voting registration and voting uh, mobilization, the doing of the vote, that we've had since the 1960s. This is a Selma moment for all Americans. And in the 1960s, the civil rights movement fought 
and fought and fought to gain justice. And at the apex of that movement was the desire to have the vote for all Americans. So there is a, there is a position that I, that I agree with that the United States did not become a real democracy until 1965 with the passage of the Voting Rights Act, which outlawed racial discrimination uh, in so many ways in our voting practices. And it was only then that we moved to a society in which uh, Americans, uh, close to all Americans, were granted the right to vote, to, to register to vote, and the ability to cast that vote. We are at the most sustained period of time in American history in the battle over that since then. Um, and it is visceral. It is vigorous. So I want to, uh, I want to do a podcast that dives into the dimensions of the battle today. Sometimes I'll talk about state policies, like the fight, uh, the fight for that Republicans have instituted to suppress votes in Georgia, in Arizona, in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin. Uh, the Brennan Center of New York University, which tracks voting laws, um, identifies 453 bills that have been introduced in 43 states in America to roll back the uh, ability to register to vote or to vote. As an example, in Georgia, a bill that passed a Senate committee, a Republican-dominated Senate committee, state Senate committee, on either Thursday or Friday would eliminate no-excuse absentee balloting, which allows people to vote for home um, for any reason, and would also eliminate automatic voter registration, which has been a policy by which um, we have it here in the state of Washington after a 2017 law put into place, which uh, registers people to vote when they get their driver's license in the state. And if you're not 18 yet, it puts you in a queue to be registered to vote when you are 18. Five million of the 7.6 million registered voters in the state of Georgia have come through the AVR system. This would uh, eliminate that. So sometimes I'm going to talk about states like that because we, we as an organization are fighting for that to stop that legislation in Georgia. Sometimes I want to talk about federal legislation such as House of Representatives Bill 1 and Senate legislation Bill 1. HR 1 is something we are fighting for right now to pass the, the House and we will uh, start to make phone calls into the for the Senate and start to mobilize to pass it in the Senate uh, shortly here. That legislation would override all of the state voter suppression uh, and would implement certain numbers. It would implement automatic voter registration for every state in America. It would implement same-day voter registration, election day voter registration. It would implement online voter registration a mandated number of days of early voting, it would do so many things. And that, that battle, that fight is, is, you know, the apex of the, of the, of the fight to vote right now. Sometimes when we talk about organizations that we work with, whether it's, um, 
right now, organizations in Virginia, Georgia, Arizona, Wisconsin, and organizations such as New Virginia Majority, which has fought to flip the Virginia legislature to Democratic, and we worked with them to make that so in 2019, uh, and then has fought for voting justice throughout that state vigorously over the last, I believe, 12 years that they've been in existence. And in Virginia this week, uh, on Thursday, they created a, they passed the law, a state voting rights act that will provide the protections that the federal voting rights act created in 1965. But much of the federal, a good chunk of the federal voting rights act has been limited over time. This would be a very strong state-based voting rights act. Uh, so we work with New Virginia majority and that is our key state in 2021. They have statewide legislative elections, governor's elections, attorney general, secretary of state elections in 2021. They do it in odd years and that'll be our primary get out the vote focus. And that is coming um, in a few months as a major push for us. So sometimes I'll talk about states. That's there's just so much going on there. Sometimes I'll talk about partners. I'm sorry, federal federal legislation, sometimes state based. You know, there's just so many things I could I could do a podcast every day, but I I have other things I have to do, too. And you can't listen probably every day. Um, so I want to spend the next few minutes in this particular episode talking about specifically the the long arc of uh, the, the attempt to stop voting in America. It is it has always been there, but a point where we can start it would be the Civil War. And after the Civil War, Republicans in Congress, partly uh, for and this is all white people, partly for um, idealistic reasons and partly for uh, just straight up strategic political reasons. They wanted to implement uh, a, the ability for all men to be able to vote in America. There was a battle over men and women to vote, but at that time, the decision was made by some key leaders, um, and it was certainly controversial, but to focus only on men, and that set back the fight for women to vote uh, for decades. I will talk about that in a later episode. But in 1869, the Congress passed the 15th Amendment, which said you could not deny the right to vote on the basis, you could not deny it on the basis of race, skin color, or previous condition of servitude. That was the beginning of federal legislation to protect the right to vote. Prior to then, in, you know, 90, 80, 80 years of American um, history, 80 years of American as a, America as a country history, there had been no federal legislation dealing with voting. None. Nada. That was the first piece of legislation. And since then, there has been an ongoing battle over who uh, counts in not denying them the right to vote on the basis of race, uh, skin color, or previous condition of servitude. Because the law itself doesn't say everybody has a right to vote. 
that would be what is called a positive legal wording. If you were to, if it had been written that every, even man, if it was only focused, let's just say it stayed only focused on men, that every man has the right to vote in America. Well, clearly it couldn't have said that because that would have included young males as well. So you could have written it still as every man of a certain age has the right to vote. But that was not going to happen because there were too many desires to not allow certain men to vote in America. And the way the law was written, it was written so that if you came up with other reasons, if states came up with other reasons to deny the right to vote other than race, skin color, or previous condition servitude, that they would have the ability to, to maneuver that and make that so. So they, the law was written in what's called a negative, not a positive fashion. A, a positive fashion would be written again as every man of a certain age has the right to vote in America. And there are a number of Western democracies where that is the language. They have federal uh, national laws where that is the language, but not in the United States. In the United States, our language at the federal level tends to be written negatively, which means that the federal government or states can't do certain things, but it leaves open entirely the landscape for them to do other things that they can figure out and pull off. So if you're creative and you are someone who wants to limit voting to certain people, if you're a creative Southern white supremacist, or you're a creative Northern white person who doesn't want to allow certain people of immigrant backgrounds or certain people living in uh, very, uh, who have been forced into certain uh, areas of a, of a urban environment, like what would be over time pejoratively labeled a ghetto or something like that, then you can come up with other ways to limit the right to vote. We have been fighting around those other ways to vote ever since then. And it goes all the way through certainly the, the late 1800s when Mississippi writes a state constitution that comes up and codifies a number of those other ways that you could deny the right to vote for uh, whether someone had the knowledge about the constitution or uh, could pay a poll tax to do that, um, to, to, uh, to, to vote or whether someone had lived in the state long enough. Um, and the Mississippi legislation in 18, uh, constitution in 1890 became the model for all of the Southern states after that to disenfranchise. That is a big word. That means to remove the ability to vote, to disenfranchise, um, many black men, many, many, most, most black men. And when those practices were not sufficient, they were followed by outright violence, lynching, murder, intimidation, uh, taking away of jobs, threats. This is the, the age, as the Equal Justice Initiative has called it, the age of terror in American racial politics, in which black Americans were were terrorized and certainly were not able to enact their voting rights. So ever since 1869, when it was passed, 
uh, when it was passed by the Congress, we have been fighting over the other ways that might be used to block the right to vote. In 1870, the 15th Amendment was ratified by the necessary states, and it was only ratified because southern states, that was 11 who had been part of the Confederacy, were required by the northern Republicans who controlled the federal government. It was required for those states at the legislative level to ratify the 15th Amendment in order for them to to gain their representation back in Congress. Uh, Otherwise, they would have just been occupied territories. So those 11 were vital to the three-fourths states that were needed to ratify the 15th Amendment. So it is one of the, I don't know if irony is the right words, but uh, contradictions in American life that the the states that have fought the hardest to restrict the vote to right, the right to vote among black Americans were the states that uh, were essential to, to passing the 15th Amendment. We continue to fight over the 15th Amendment, and there is two, uh, two um, legal cases that have been joined together that are at the U.S. Supreme Court right now, and indeed today are oral arguments in the Supreme Court. They focus on two Arizona laws in which the Supreme Court is, de- is going to decide whether or not there are the, uh, the, the state government has the ability to restrict voting practices in certain ways. One of them is that the Arizona State Attorney General argues that a state law passed by Republicans in the state legislature, because they control the state legislature, um, is not unconstitutional. This state law is one that restricts any person from uh, transporting the ballot the voting ballot of anybody else who's not a member of their immediate legal family. So this is a this is a this is a law that says that per me, like if I lived in Arizona, could not transport a neighbor's ballot to uh, a voting box um, or to the voter registrar because it would be illegal because we're not a member of the same legal family. Conservatives over time have labeled this ballot harvesting in just a loaded terminology that you're somehow, you know, taking the ballots of others, whether you call it actual harvesting of crops or, or the more incendiary notion of like harvesting something like organs. Um, they've called it ballot, ballot harvesting. Liberals have said there are many, many, many Americans who cannot get their ballot to a voter registrar or to a voting location. And it is simply a, you know, a good human practice to allow us to, to have that taken by somebody else. Um, and since everybody has to, if the, in these situations, if you're voting not in person, has to sign their ballot, there is nothing that is problematic here. It is a legal statement when you sign those ballots. The government of Arizona is trying to outlaw those. And uh, this is a Supreme Court choice whether or not that that in any way infringes upon portions of the U.S. Constitution and the Voting Rights Act. That's 
today being discussed in the Supreme Court. I, of course, believe firmly that, you know, the issue of signatures on ballots uh, eliminates any concern about having someone else transport the ballot. The second case that the Arizona, uh, that is before the Supreme Court, is another Arizona case um, in which the Attorney General Republican is arguing that there is not a necessary, uh, there's not a requirement that there be polling locations within a certain distance of where people live, uh, voting locations. There are many American citizens who are native to our indigenous Americans who live on reservations in Arizona. Very important uh, uh, body of folks involved in the political process. And they often have to travel hundreds of miles to a polling location. Is there a legal requirement to provide polling locations closer uh, such that people can vote? Um, and again, this gets into the issue of could someone else drive your ballot for you uh, because it's such a far distance. So these two are intertwined, the issue of proximity to loading, to voting. And the Supreme Court will consider these These all uh, revolve around Section 2 of the Federal Voting Rights Act passed in 1965, which is about whether or not laws have not whether laws have discriminatory effects, whether they do have discriminatory effects upon certain populations. These clearly do among voters of color, particularly indigenous Americans. That battle, that fight to vote, all the way back to at least the 15th Amendment, is, is what this podcast is about. The, uh, the, uh, that battle is here. It's now. We are engaged. So let me talk a little bit about our engagement and then, uh, an hour being common power. And then I'm going to finish this episode with an, with a story. Uh, we are for common power right now. Uh, we work to fight to, uh, to bring about voting justice through the candidates who we fight, who we work for. So like ones in Virginia, Georgia, Wisconsin, and so on. We do it through the, the candidates we, we work for. And we also do it through advocacy, which is the pressuring of elected officials to not enact discriminatory policies or to enact expansive voting policies. We are right now ramping up our advocacy work, and it's going to be big for the next several months. We are pushing on federal officials through calls to constituents in other states in which we ask those constituents to contact their sitting House of Representatives representative or senator and to pressure them to pass H.R. 1 and S. 1, which would be monumentally valuable pieces of legislation. We are also calling to citizens in other states to ask them to pressure their state officials over legislation in the crucial states of Arizona, um, Georgia, and Pennsylvania. That's where we're focusing. In each of these cases, we're working with partner organizations that are 
handling the technology that's involved here. We just provide the human power to come and do the calls. The people leading that for us are uh, Kylie Knowles, one of our great staff members, and me. I am working with Kylie on this. And we did a phone bank yesterday for this where we tried it out. And today we have the very first state-based phone banks at 2 p.m. today. On our website at common power forward slash advocacy is listed all of our advocacy opportunities. And right now they are into states. In coming days, we will reinstitute our federal push. Uh, we will be contacting citizens in other states, uh, asking them to contact their legislators. We will be directly pressuring elected officials in the federal government. This is essential. This is an easy, easy do for us. So I'm asking you to join us, to participate with us, to devote time. Right now, each phone bank takes about a half hour of a Zoom call, plus uh, in which we uh, get everybody on board. And then we, we go and do the phone banking for about an hour. And then we uh, come back and just kind of debrief that before and after is all part of our, our community push and common power. And we're doing that right now several afternoons a week. I'm putting on a mask right now, so I'm about to go into a, a, a post office, which is another topic that we'll discuss in this series of podcasts. Um, I'll only have it on for a moment. Uh, but um, we are doing that advocacy work, and we need people. We talk about investing in common power, time or treasure, all right? And time or treasure are where we can make a difference. Um, in our work. So we're asking you for time. It's at common power forward slash advocacy to come do work with us. Pressuring legislators. Okay. Um, that's our advocacy work right now. It is easy. We provide the script. We provide the phone numbers. We do it in community. Uh, it is the messy work of democracy, and it is essential. Please join Kylie and me in our advocacy work. Part of the reason I'm starting this podcast today, March 1st, 2021, is because this is the first day that we have rolled out our state-based uh, pressuring of legislators, and it's time to get going. We're going to be doing this uh, many, many days, and we are going to push all the way through the congressional consideration of these bills and the state decisions. This week is also the, the unveiling of H.R. 1 into the House of Representatives. By the end of this week, they'll be voting on it. Uh, and so the timing is perfect for us to work there. We have already been pushing for House of Representatives members to support H.R. 1. We were pushing on wavering Democrats. Um, and we were uh, praising and, uh, and uh, uh, affirming those Democrats who were already on board, and all 221 of them now, all of the Democrats in the House of Representatives are now co-sponsors of H.R. 1. It is going to pass later this week. That is a first necessary step. We will then get into serious battle formation for the Senate. So that is that is happening right, right now, our advocacy work. Today, 
and other days on Common Power Advocacy. We are creating a uh, what we're calling is an advocacy team for this in which people sign up and they get updates. One of the dimensions of this advocacy work is that we're working so closely with partner orgs and their schedules change. Their uh, points of calling, who they're calling, change. So there's a lot of uh, movement on this and to keep people abreast of this, we will, we're asking our volunteers to sign up just like we do for all of our get out the vote state teams. Uh, we're going to have an advocacy team where we will inform you, um, on a, uh, a as needed ad hoc basis, which is going to be needed. Uh, we know that this is a battle that is, requires nimbleness and flexibility and commitment. So I am all in on this. I have led, um, I've been very involved in our, our volunteer work over time, in addition to the education and the fundraising and other pieces that I'm involved in. Um, but I am going to be right there with Kylie on this one, uh, driving this, this advocacy initiative. So please join us. Any questions at all you have about that, my email is david at commonpower.org. Okay? So let's go on that. Let's go. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about these dimensions, uh, AJ Musewe and I are doing a two-part lecture series on what we call the lost cause, which was the response of the Confederacy to the loss of the Civil War and is now what we're calling the new lost cause, the response of Trump, Donald Trump, and other Republicans to the loss of the 2020 election. We are doing that. Uh, we're doing that lecture series called "The New Lost Cause" on March 8th and 9th, uh, Monday and Tuesday, a week from right now. You can sign up for us at Eventbrite. Um, you can just look for the New Lost Cause, or you can go to our events page on Common Power and sign up there. You can look for it on those dates, and then you can click through to the Eventbrite to register. We'll be doing that on Zoom. I will then, three weeks from now, uh, do a two lecture series myself on the, the fight to vote, the fight to vote um, in America 2021. And those lectures will be um, two nights, March 22nd and 23rd. Is that right? Yes, 22nd and 23rd on Zoom. All of these resources, people's registration fees, goes to uh, financially support the organization of common power. So that's an action step, right? Those are three action steps right there. Join our advocacy work now. We will have on the webpage today a sign-up form for people to be added to the, the uh, advocacy team. And join our phone bank today. There's another one on Wednesday. And there will be many, many more put up on that page. We will also, in about a week, add direct contact through calling to legislators and tweeting at legislators, um, where we will not be actually calling citizens of other states. We'll be reaching out directly to legislators um, in the federal government. So please join us. And then two lecture series. So much to do. This is just the beginning. You, I, I cannot convey how many things are in my mind about the work that we are doing and the importance of this work. So I want to finish with a story.
I'm reading the book Reagan Land. Uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, named after him, Reagan Land, by uh, the historian, the analyst, Rick Perlstein. And Rick Perlstein has written three books. This is the third about um, the, the shift to American conservatism that occurred after the 1960s, the rise of the new right. Um, it was racial, it was religious, it was cynical, um, it was powerful. Um, I read the first book in that, in that series called Nixonland, which uh, I read it about probably 10, 15 years ago, and it was this powerful kind of social history, by which I mean it's not written like in an abstract way, it's written with anecdotes, and it's written from the perspective of the people who are involved in it. Um, and it was an, just, a, to me, uh, a very informative, eye-opening understanding of many of the behind-the-scenes actions that were involved in conservatism that drove the success of Richard Nixon, uh, who in 1972 won 49 states in the Electoral College. 49 states in the Electoral College. Um, he's, he wrote a, a second book, and now this is the third one, Reagan Land. And it's about Jimmy Carter becoming president in 1976 and Ronald Reagan's decisions that he made in maneuvering from having been a fairly liberal, not like, like truly liberal, but a fairly reasonable governor of California to becoming one of the most conservative and influential presidents we've had in American history. And I'm about I'm about 15% into the book, and it's just compelling. Um, I will talk about various books in this podcast, um, because I just, uh, I read and read. Um, and the story I want to tell is in 1977, Jimmy Carter has pro uh, proposed a series, uh, not a series, but a, a piece of legislation that would be electoral reform. It would implement more, more voter registration practices. It would, uh, like allowing people to register on election day in every state. It would allow uh, people to vote uh, by mail in every state. Things that we talked, that we're arguing about today. And in 1977, he proposed it. It was immediately, um, you think I'm going to say opposed, but no, it was immediately supported by leading Republicans in the Congress. Many of them came out in, in support of it and said, yeah, we, we're totally with this. We should pass, we'll pass this quickly. And the response of Republicans in Congress were, let's get it done. Um, the, the book details these various Republicans speaking out on behalf of support of it. But then there began to be an argument against it from strong, strong conservatives who did not want the right to vote to be available for, for everybody. And they began to push back and fight very hard against it. And Ronald Reagan was at the center of that. And Reagan in 1977 um, speaks out publicly against it, in, against this legislation in several places. Uh, several uh, public arenas. 
And he says that if this legislation is passed, Republicans will be as dead politically as a dodo bird. Dead as a dodo became this internal language of the Republican Party in fighting this expansion of voting rights because they knew then that if all American citizens 18 or older had the right to vote, the Republicans would have to appeal to them. And they didn't want to do that. They wanted to appeal to a shrinking, powerful, white uh, majority of the electorate. Dead is a dodo bird, Reagan said. And he and others um, in the new right, the rise of the kind of the mashing up of religious conservatives, white evangelicals, and uh, Republican strategists. So Richard Vigory, Paul Weirich, Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, uh, they're all there. Yes, they are all there. And they work with Reagan and others, Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, to block this expansion. And the, the following year they give, there is a, a conference, not dissimilar to the Conservative Political Action Conference, which is ending today, uh, ended yesterday in Orlando, Florida, with Donald Trump speaking at yesterday. At that, at a conference in 1977, there was an award given to 30 key members uh, who worked strategically to block this legislation. And they are praised for, in the words of the conference, protecting and upholding free freedom and free elections. That's 1977, okay? Uh, that is just one drop in the bucket of this hundreds of years of fighting to vote and the fight to block the vote. I did not know about that instance. I did not know about Reagan's leadership in that fight to block the right to vote. So I know, and I understand now the bridge, the bridge between the white supremacists that blocked the right to vote all the way through the 1960s. I see the bridge now from there through Reagan, through the new right to the, the fight to block the vote that has occurred post Florida in 2000, post the Florida election 2000. I will talk about that bridge. I will talk about the post 2000 fight to vote in my lectures in three weeks. We are on that journey. Unfortunately, that bridge has been crossed. There was the Selma Bridge, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, that was crossed by those fighting to vote, and there has been the bridge enacted and crossed by Reagan and the New Right to block the right to vote. And then there has been a long distance down the road after the bridge of fighting over the right to vote that has been enacted under the John Roberts Supreme Court by folks in our contemporary post-2000 environment with moments of fighting over Barack Obama's election, gerrymandering, uh, automatic voter registration, how, uh, what groups can, can work to, to register voters, whether or not we can vote by mail, 
all of this is at a head today. It's all right now. Right, 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 right now. So I'm not just going to watch. We're not just going to watch. It isn't just a book to read. History is informative to us. And then the, the responsibility lies on us to act today, to take the steps to change the arc of the moral universe, to bend it towards justice. The fight to vote is going to be a foray, an examination into that arena, into that world. I encourage you, I invite you to join. I will try to post these podcasts Monday mornings and Thursday mornings. Uh, but I can't for sure hit those. I will commit to two days a week. Um, I'll try to post them Monday and Thursday mornings. Knowing me, there might be more than two a week. Today, the Supreme Court, here's oral arguments. Today, in the House of Representatives, H.R. 1 is being introduced into discussion. Today, in several states around this country, voter suppression is being pursued by Republicans. They're literally voting these days. Today, we have a phone bank to fight against that voter suppression. Today. Thank you, folks. The fight to vote is ours. We are in this together, and we go further together when we work collaboratively with